Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Today, you'll get a chance to learn about the largest earth science research facility on our planet. The Deputy Director of Biosphere 2 has joined me on the podcast to discuss the history of Biosphere 2 and highlight the achievements not widely seen by the public. We'll also jump into some of the science behind the facility and address what projects are in action now and what's to come at Biosphere 2. So without further delay, let me introduce the Deputy Director of Biosphere 2, John Adams. For two decades, John has helped drive the evolution of Biosphere 2. Starting in 1995, he led all terrestrial experiments inside the biosphere, building on his deep knowledge of the facility and its science. Adams became Biosphere 2's media coordinator and public spokesperson at Columbia University in 1999, fielding inquiries from all around the world. At the same time, Adams assumed leadership for B2's exhibits and public outreach staff. And after a short stint away from the biosphere, John returned in 2004, and thereafter he filled critical roles such as facilities manager, health and safety supervisor, public outreach coordinator, and biological systems manager, which led him to being named the assistant director of planning and facilities, a mantle he held for seven years. And in 2014, John advanced to his current leadership role of Biosphere 2 Deputy Director, engaging as a key member of the team that plans and directs all research and related activities inside Biosphere 2 and the surrounding campus. So it seems like we got the right person for the show. But now that you've been introduced to the topic of the show, which is Biosphere 2 and my friend John, we are going to head into our first commercial break. And when we come back, we will be discussing, you guessed it, Biosphere 2. Enjoy. John, thank you so much for joining the podcast. How are you doing? I, I'm doing well, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, no, I, I think um, other way around. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you. My friends and I went to the Biosphere 2 about a little over a month ago, and I was awestruck by the sheer size of the facility. And, you know, I, I had to. I was like, I need to talk to somebody from here and get more word out on this facility because it's just... It's gorgeous, not only just the history of it, but also what's in the works for the future. So with this segment, we're going to talk about most of the past and then what you've learned from it, some in the successes behind it, and also, uh, you know, outlining the facility just to touch and, and whatever you would like to talk about. So first of all, you know, let's start out with this question, John. What was the initial purpose of Biosphere 2? And also, I, I have to ask the cheesy question. Why Biosphere 2? Why the two? And actually, it's not even a cheesy question. It's a great question because we get uh, we get asked that a lot. So it's a really common one. But uh, before we answer that one, you know, Biosphere 2 came, you know, on the scene in Arizona, really sort of in the, the mid-80s with this group of people who were proposing an idea to build a completely sealed environment here in southern Arizona. Um, and I think for most of us, you know, the headlines really started to pick up in the late 80s, early 90s as the project neared completion. And their intentions and idea were was not only to build a replica of Earth, but the fundamental reason for doing so is that they recognize that in order for them to better understand Earth systems and the complexities, there was just no way. I mean, I think we're learning that every day today is just how infinitely complex things are outside. 
And so in order to try to get an understanding of that, they need to scale it down. And so building a replica of Earth was one way in which they felt that they could achieve and improve this understanding of Earth systems, at least capture some of those fundamental processes with the idea that not only would they recreate these living systems, but then they also had the intentions of living among those, those systems. And in doing so, they created a completely hermetically field, sealed environment. Uh, so there was no material exchange. The only thing that left the system or went into the system was energy. And typically that was through, you know, the, the predominant thing was, was sun. And they completed uh, the construction of this project in 1981. And, and I think what's so amazing, or 1991, what's so amazing is they took them only four years to build it. Wow. So they broke ground in 1987 and they built this over three acre structure in four years with all of its complexities, which we're gonna describe here. And they had people living inside starting in September of 1991. I mean, to that is absolutely amazing for a project, a facility, and really a concept and an idea at a scale that no one had ever attempted. And even right. today, you know, nearly 30 years later, there is nothing that rivals it in its complexities and its size. Now, we know worldwide that there's a lot of greenhouses that are much bigger. So there's these production greenhouses where they're growing strawberries or lettuce or tomatoes, mm -hmm. but their intentions are to not capture as many of those biological complexities as they can. They're very different purpose. You know, we see places and we see organizations like NASA, you know, the, the Russian space agency, the, the yeah. Chinese space agency, they have created analogs. And these analogs, in some respects, resemble Biosphere 2 from the perspective that they are sealed from the outside, except for when they intentionally open or close and, and allow things in and out. But again, they're significantly smaller. I mean, they're you know they're the size of most of our living rooms, you know, or, or maybe the size of our houses. We're not talking about a structure that covers, you know, over three acres. It's almost three football fields, and it's north-south access. It's got. 7.2 million cubic feet is the volume of air that's inside there. I mean, that's that's 84, that's equivalent to 84 Olympic-sized pools. Wow. And this original group, uh, the Biospherians, as we collectively refer to them, it really worked for the most part. And the way in which they did that is they looked at the environment here in Southern Arizona. And they said, okay, if we're gonna recreate some of these systems that you find on Earth, and we're gonna have them interact and function with one another, Mm -hmm. We're going to build sort of a glass shell over the top of it to allow light to come in. Right. You know, there's certain limitations and those limitations are going to be, you know, how precisely can we control the climate inside given all the forces on the outside that are trying to drive it in some respects in an opposite direction. So yeah. we've all closed up our car on a hot summer day. We've left it. We've run into the store. We've come back out and we know how quickly it heats up, especially if, you're here in Southern Arizona. I mean, right. it, it's just incredible how rapidly it heats up. Biosphere is the same way. So mm -hmm. it enters, it's absorbed by the materials inside. As those materials reach their capacity and it, that energy begins to re-radiate back out, the wavelength has changed and it's not easily transmitted back out through the glass. So you trap it. Yep. So you have a greenhouse. And so in, in this, they recognize that, you know, creating an Arctic tundra so you were just mentioning that you were up in Alaska, right? Yep. Uh, and you saw some of the glaciers and things. That type of an environment would be very difficult to create, recreate, oh, yeah. 
or the energy that would be necessary to maintain the appropriate conditions would just be off the charts. So they lean towards things that were tropical or subtropical in nature. And in doing so, though, they wanted to select systems, even though they sort of shared broadly similar climate requirements, they were very distinct systems. And so if we start on the southern end of Bias or two and work our way north, they started off with a coastal fog desert. So this was a region that you would find actually, you know, a, a couple days drive down into northern Mexico. And if you started to work your way down the, the Baja Peninsula, okay. you would encounter the types of plants, the vegetation communities that were incorporated into Bias for Two. And in fact, that transect is what they used. The difference is, is they took four or 500 miles and condensed it into a relatively small area. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you know what constitutes a fog desert compared to just a normal desert? I'm sure there's different distinctions. I just, I'm not familiar. So a desert by definition is typically an arid area. So it receives much less precipitation than a lot of areas. So this fog Mm -hmm. desert is arid in nature, so it doesn't receive a lot of precipitation. But the difference is, and the reason it's a fog desert, is in many cases it's proximity to a large body of water. In this case, Uh we've got the Pacific on one side, and then we've got the Gulf on the other. And so with that sort of being sandwiched in between those two, you sort of have higher humidity conditions than what you might other typically think of a desert. And a lot of the plants have specially adapted to deal with that. So they're either close to the Gulf of California or they're close to the Pacific Ocean. And and so it's that transect that runs down Baja, California. It still has extremes in temperature. It's pretty hot during the day, really cold at night. There's not a lot to hold that there. And so you have pretty large temperature fluctuations. But the plants in this particular region are winter active and summer dormant. So just the opposite of sort of what we think of this as a Sonoran desert here that surrounds, well, at least the southern half of Arizona. Now, as we sort of walk our way up through Bias for Two, we come to an area that we refer to as a thorn scrub. And this was actually, if you were to go sort of down the main portion of Mexico from southern Arizona and work your way three or four days in, a lot of the plants that were actually used to create this subtropical thorn scrub were collected and brought into Bias for Two. Um, And so we have an upper and lower thorn scrub. And uh, typically, this is an area that is summer active and winter dormant. So just the opposite of the the fog desert. They did this intentionally. You work your way up a little bit further, and you come to a really unique area that is distinctly different. And and this is a mangrove area. So these are mangrove. These are red, black, and white mangroves, of which some of those varieties you can find, uh, you know, as the Colorado River dumps into uh, the Gulf of California. But nonetheless, most people think of mangrove trees as those that are found in Southern Florida. The plants that actually make up this biome were collected from a site that was slated for development. They got permission to go in and collect as much of the root ball, the soil, the water, and put them in to create what today is the largest indoor mangrove system that that I know of, that we know of. Uh, The Smithsonian had a system in Maryland there for a while, but they recently decommissioned it. So to our knowledge, this is the largest indoor a mangrove system anywhere. And what's really cool about ours is it's been in place for 30 years. And we'll wow. talk why that's significant, uh, you know, experimentally when we, when we talk about some of the research that we can do inside. Yeah, I know uh, that mangroves are, are extremely important in pretty much, you know, all over the globe, so to speak, in, in, uh, in subtropical regions. And that's some, that's, a, I guess, a micro, like, that's like an ecosystem that's kind of been hit uh, due to due to climate change. So, 
that's exciting for the future. I know I'm, I'm forecasting a little bit, but that's exciting news. So, you know, mangroves, just as we sort of moved off of that, but we'll get right back into the other systems that make up Biosphere 2. Um, you know, we hear a lot about today of sort of blue carbon. So these are those systems in our coastal or ocean areas that store lots of carbon. Yep. And right now the literature that I've read suggests that mangrove systems store four times the amount of carbon that a typical tropical forest does. So from a carbon credit standpoint, from an ecological standpoint, especially if you're trying to mitigate increases in atmospheric CO2, these systems prove and show that they have lots of potential. So yes. there's tremendous amounts of interest, not to mention the ecological, the economic, and the social importance of them as well. Um, but so if we jump up out of the mangrove system, uh, we jump back up onto the terrestrial systems and we're in the savanna, it gives way to the upper savanna. So, you know, by definition, uh, what we have in Southern Arizona is a savanna, sparsely distributed trees with a grass understory. Mm -hmm. And that's how this original system was designed. So it's, it's dominated by a couple varieties of acacia trees, Originally, it did and have quite a bit of grasses in between those trees, but because over the 30 years that canopy's closed in, restricted the light, we've seen a lot of those grasses uh, die mm -hmm. off, and it's it's dominated by uh, an overhead canopy again made up of acacia trees. Um, you know, we're sitting up on a on a cliff in the upper savanna that's you know it's about 30 feet up, and if you look over, you're looking down onto our ocean system. So the ocean system is about a million gallons is the tank size. By the time you put in the rock and the sand yeah. uh, that they use to create relief within this tank, you're looking at about 776,000 gallons of salt water. Um, it was originally modeled after a Caribbean reef environment. And in fact, many of the organisms that went into this system originally were collected off the Yucatan Peninsula. And so we had hard corals and soft corals and different types of fish and algae you know, a whole host of invertebrates in this living system. Uh, you know, the difference between us and aquarium is that they weren't feeding the fish. Everything is dependent on what they can get from within the system for their survival. Understood. And then on the far end, on the northern end of Biosphere 2, there's a large pyramid-looking structure, and this is where we have the tropical rainforest, okay? So this is a system that was originally modeled after an Amazonian rainforest. Most of the plant species you find are what they collectively refer to as new world species. So those are the ones that we find here in North America. We have a few that you would collectively refer to as old world species or, or species that you might see in other tropical regions around the world, for example, like in Africa. But okay. we're dominated by species that you typically are gonna see in South America. And originally this system was planted with over 400 species. And today we have just over a hundred species. Now it's a big loss, but all things considered, that's really good from a diversity standpoint, nearly 30 yeah. years later, we'll talk about it. Now inside Biosphere 2, they also kept a separate part for their dining and cooking areas. They had their apartments, they had analytical laboratories, uh, they had a place where they kept some, some farm animals and then, of this three acre, a half acre was set aside for their agricultural practices. This area was going to support their nutritional needs. Um, and so they were gonna have to grow everything that they were going to need for survival uh, when they sealed themselves in in September of 1991 for two years. Mm. Okay, I, I, I see, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty, I didn't know that it was uh, that segregated from the other, um, the other, I guess, microclimates. Well, they're, they're, they're interconnected, but they are distinctly different. 
Um, yeah. So the first ones I describe, if we, you know, rainforest, ocean, savanna, marsh, thorn scrub, and desert, mm-hmm. I refer to those, or we refer to those as the wilderness area. Then you have the living quarters, but that those were all interconnected. And then you have the agricultural area. Again, they were all interconnected, but through smaller passageways. Okay, I see. And one thing that I think would be really fun to talk about just just briefly is the structure of the building, because I know you mentioned that, you know, we are living in a desert, right? So it's really hot during the day and really cold at night. So you get really large pressure fluctuations. So uh, I know I I could let you talk about it a little bit more because you know the numbers of it. But essentially, you had to develop something to engineer something that could deal with the fluctuations of the pressure. And those are the lungs, correct? Yeah, the the lungs are a really ingenious engineering (laughs) solution. So to create this hermetic seal, what they did is they they lined bias for two with stainless steel. So it sits in a stainless steel tub. So there was no interaction with the desert soil. Mm -hmm. They put all these glass panes overhead. What provides the supporting structure for those glass planes and the frames is what they, what we call the space frame. Um, yep. So this is a, a tubular structure that's interlocked uh, that was created by a company called Pierce Structures. And then those window panes where they come together, that seal was achieved by using a Dow Corning 795. So that it was cocked in or glazed in. Yep. Now, when they originally commissioned Bias for Two, it only lost 10% of its volume annually. That's an exceptionally well-sealed building. But when you do that and you have this large volume and you have all this glass, the air is going to heat up and it's going to cool down. The engineers quickly determined that if they didn't compensate for the change in pressure as a result of that heating or cooling air, that you could compromise the integrity of bias for two. And this is where the lungs come into play. These were not an afterthought. They engineered and designed them right out of the gate. And what these are is these are connected through tunnels on the southern end of bias for two and on the western end. They're approximately one-seventh the volume at their maximum capacity of bias for two. But what's unique is if you look at an image of bias for two, you just sort of see this white geodesic dome. But what's inside of that is a, a large diaphragm. So within it, you've got a fixed wall. Attached to the top of that wall, you have a flexible rubber membrane. It is in turn connected to a large aluminum pan. And so the weight of the rubber and the aluminum pan is 40,000 pounds. And so what happens is, is the air expands, it moves its way down this connecting tunnel into this space, and it lifts that 40,000 pounds up. And then at night, as the air cools, that weight pushes back down. So this thing is sort of hovering, you know, much like our lungs do on a much more rapid basis. It expands and contracts as the pressure inside biosphere two changes so that you never over or under pressurize the facility and why having there's two lungs inside biosphere two and essentially having eighty thousand pounds sitting on the air mass there's always a slight positive pressure which means that anything that was happening that resulted in a leak inevitably there were leaks remember i mentioned there was 10 percent loss on an annual basis that was always being pushed outward and never anything new being brought in. That was a design criteria, and they achieved it uh, through the lungs as well. Ah, I see. Okay. Now, there were two obvious missions, right? Uh, and there was a lot to be learned from them. Would, would you mind talking about them and then also explaining what was learned from them? Yep. Uh, you know, again, no one had ever attempted to build a hermetically sealed environment 
leverage biological systems that were not only going to balance the atmosphere, but to support the nutritional needs of people living inside. Mm -hmm. There had been things like BIOS 1, 2, and 3 that the Russians had done more recently. What's made the headlines is the Chinese Lunar Palace in Beijing, where it's a hermetically sealed environment. And they lived inside for about a year uh, here recently. They completed that, I think, you know, two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. But no one had ever attempted anything of this size. And so no one really knew what was going to happen when they did this. Um, and the reason that they called it Biosphere 2 is because they wanted to replicate Earth Biosphere 1. Again, we know how complex Earth systems are, and to try to capture those processes to support what you and I are going to need living inside was their objective. And so September of 1991, they sealed the doors, and they had a little bit of a stockpile of food, as you could imagine. But then they were dependent on what they were going to grow from this half acre of land. And they were dependent on the air that they were going to breathe and the water that they were going to need to drink based on what these living systems were doing. And they didn't quite get everything correct. Okay, So the agricultural system never produced adequate calories for them. So they were always hungry. Although nutritionally they were okay, they were calorie deficit. What they tended to get a lot of and what grew really well in this agricultural system were things like sweet potatoes. Okay. okay, so I hope you like sweet potatoes because that's what you're pretty much eating every single day. You know, they did do onions and, and different types of fruits and things, but I, they were not staples in their diet. Sweet potatoes were. The other thing is, is that in the rainforest and in this agricultural area, they created a soil mixture that was extremely organically rich, really high in organic material because they knew that they were gonna to have to support an intensive growth of plants over a short period of time. And they didn't want to have those plants enter into some type of nutrient deficit. I see. So in doing so, in creating this very organically rich media, they also created a very favorable environment for microbes. Oh. And so the microbes in the soil, inside bias for two, they're like you and I, they consume oxygen, they give off CO2. Yep. So what ended up happening is soil respiration outpaced plant photosynthesis. They had hoped the plants would take in the CO2, split water, give us oxygen, and continue to grow. And they just couldn't keep pace. So what ended up happening is almost immediately when they closed that door, they started to see a very dramatic decrease in oxygen. Of the two-year mission at about day 500, oxygen reached a critical level, 14.2%. The medical doctor was starting to see cognitive limitations. Yeah. Uh, and he ultimately, along with those who were living inside, communicating with the folks managing on the outside, said, time out. We think that we've got a serious issue. And if we don't add oxygen back into the system, we potentially could compromise our ability to continue to live inside. Yeah. And so what they did is they actually added oxygen back in for the safety and well-being of the eight people who were sealed inside. Mm -hmm. uh, what they didn't do is they didn't initially disclose that they had to do that. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And with a project that was, you know, being watched around the world, it was very heavily publicized. Um, you know, that was a big deal. They didn't initially come out and acknowledge that they had to do that. They actually denied that. And then they had to retract some statements. In my opinion, that is really where all of that integrity was lost. And so today, oftentimes what you hear many people refer to is those early experiments that with the people living inside and bias for two, they were a failure. But there is no such thing as a failed experiment, okay? We do experiments because we don't know what the outcome's going to be. 
Yeah. Bias for two was a huge success. Now, what it was a failure in is I think, again, as many people make the mistake, is that you're not forthcoming with what's happening. And they, if they would have been forthcoming, yes, there would have been criticisms. For sure, you would have had those naysayers said, I told you so. But I don't think the criticisms or the loss of credibility would have been what it was as a result of not acknowledging that right out of the gate. Yep. I think the science would have outweighed the criticism, you know, and and just the lack of management because they would have seen that problem like, oh, there's there's microbes or, you know, I don't I don't know what you're talking about as microbes, but like, you know, maybe there's there's certain bacteria that flourished or there's certain fungi that, that flourished and created this because both of them, of course, you know, eat up oxygen, you know, mm-hmm. the respiration. Uh, so they could take that and they could do s- samples and say, well, this you know, we need fungi, of course, to give certain nutrients to the to the plants in exchange. It's called the the wood wide web. But um, how much do how much are we allowed? How much can we allot versus you know the the photosynthesis that needs to take place? So there could have been a lot of amazing studies that came about that, or you know, I guess a better reaction to like in place studies to you know come off of the results, but because of the managerial issues it's it's unfortunate that a lot of the times the pop culture you know it follows the people rather than the science so that's but the science was beautiful <laughs> in my opinion well, it was and and to your point uh, you know today we commonly talk about the microbiome mm-hmm. and how important it is whether it's in our you know in our own bodies or outside but you know then no one was really thinking about that 30 years ago good point and, and ecologically, there were a lot of people who said that Biosphere 2 would not self-organize, that it would sort of just become this large algal mat, everything would die and wouldn't live. And over 30 years later, that is not the case. I mean, you've got systems that self-organized. We're using them experimentally today. So I think that is a testament to just how ahead of the time that original group was. And it was just some missteps in communication that really tarnished that an initial or early reputation. Yeah. And it shows the beauty of literally natural selection due to the, you know, the endangerments within the environment, right? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was a huge success. There was so much learned about it. Yes. And you're right. We often gravitate towards more the human dynamic side of things rather than the science or the eco- and, and science and humans is going the same, but you know, the ecological side of things. And if you think of Biosphere 2, and so this is a neat, interesting twist uh, that ties back to reality TV, because we all know how widely popular it is, whether Mm -hmm. you like it or hate it. Um, You know, reality TV, and in fact, Big Brother got its start because the producer was actually reading about the Biosphere 2 experiment on a flight back over to England. uh, And he's on record as saying this and was scratching his head is why they did not put cameras everywhere and sort of document this experiment um, in that way. And what led him to sort of, in part, build uh, Big Brother in the way that he did. And, and if you think about Bias for Two, it's sort of a hybrid between Survivor and Big Brother rolled into one. And who knows if they would yeah. have documented in the way that we know that reality TV shows are so well documented today that they could be on their you know, the longest running reality TV show and on, you know, whatever, how many episodes, uh, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> so my understanding also is that they, they went in for, for round two, like there was round one, they went for round two. Uh, what, what, like what came about round two? 
Yeah, so just we'll just cap round one. Round one lasted two years, eight people, mm -hmm. four men, four women. And so they went in in September of 1991. They came out in September of 1993. The challenge and what is an important component between round one and round two is that oxygen you know, got down to 14.2%. And when mm -hmm. they had researchers helping them evaluate the atmosphere inside, what they were looking at is not so much how much oxygen dropped, but actually CO2 should have gotten much higher inside than it did. Remember, we only lost 10% of our volume, so we should know exactly where every molecule is going, and they couldn't account for it. And they got some researchers from Columbia University involved, a guy by the name of Wally Broker and a graduate student of his, Jeff Severinghouse. They came in to try to balance this equation, and what they couldn't figure out is where was that additional CO2 going? What they came to discover after quite a bit of looking um, and questioning and sort of scratching their heads was that there's massive amounts of concrete that make up the infrastructure of Biosphere 2. And so what was happening is this newly poured concrete was curing and it was reacting with the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So CO2 plus calcium hydroxide was becoming calcium carbonate. Uh, it's yes. a really well-known equation. Every civil engineer knows it, every chemical engineer. But in this particular context, they weren't putting it together. What they were able to discover and they actually wrote a paper, is that Wally Broker, a really prominent geochemist at Columbia University, this was the light bulb moment for him because what he said is, I can trace essentially every molecule and how it's moving through the system and at a scale that's unprecedented and at a resolution that I will never even be able to get on the outside of Earth. And scientifically, this is hugely important. And so this started a change in how people viewed Biosphere 2 and what its potential use would be. But concurrently, they decided they were going to seal another group of people in. Um, this time it was seven. It was okay. five men, two women. And this time they only went in for about six months, okay? And this is a critical juncture in Biosphere 2 because of the interest, in particular, of this research community and this gentleman by the name of Wally Broker, another guy by the name of Michael Crow, who's president of Arizona State University, who had a prominent administrative role at Columbia University at the time, is they began to see the idea that rather than having people live inside, this facility offered a unique opportunity to better understand Earth and environmental sciences. And so what ended up happening is because of all of the controversy that predominantly surrounded that first experiment, that they decided to cut that second experiment at about six months, they decided to get rid of the original management group. And this was, when I say they, this was Ed Bass and his team. They are the ones who, uh, it was he who financed the project. Yeah. They said, time out, we need to change direction. So they actually removed that management group, brought in a new management team, and started to go down the road of using Bias for Two as a large earth environmental science laboratory. And so that began that transition. Um, you know, it started to take place and in 1994, everything came together in sort of mid to late 1995 with Columbia University assuming management of bias for two in January of 1996. Yeah. Um, and so this formally ended the idea of people living inside and now using these systems to understand how they're going to respond to future climate change events. And that really brings us to where we are today. Um, although the experiments have changed, we're using it in a very similar fashion. 
so just just to back up really quick, mm-hmm. one thing that we didn't, I, I don't think we touched on is uh, Ed Bass, right? I think he, he had two initiatives to to start this, right? One was obviously the earth science portion of it, but the second one was the whole, the hype of, of planetary travel. Am I right by saying that? Yeah, and yeah, the best you're... place was to do this was here in the desert also because of the temperature fluctuations and and the and the complexity of the of the situation and having soil on the outside technically that's really not fit for for agriculture in the first place. So I, I just wanted to throw that in. I don't think we we went over that at all. No, we didn't. Uh, Ed Bass is a key feature. Uh, he is the reason why Biosphere Two was able to get built because he financially put the funds forward. This was a private venture. You know, there's a lot of numbers that are floating around there, but we're definitely north of two hundred million dollars that were used to build Biosphere Two, late '80s, early '90s. So if you extrapolate that to today yeah. with inflation and probably even more, you know, we're we're definitely north of a billion. Yeah. Um, fundamentally, what captured the headlines was this was a futuristic colony that could potentially be on the moon or Mars. I think we know today that we're really far away from building anything of this size, of this complexity on the moon yeah. or Mars. But fundamentally, the reason for them building Biosphere 2 was to understand Biosphere 1, the Earth. These are his words, not mine. I, you know, I really, this, this sort of resonated with me when I heard this quote. Um, and what he said is that by building Biosphere 2, we hope to gain a better understanding, a better appreciation for Biosphere 1 so that we can be better stewards of the planet. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, with that, I think we're going to run into our first commercial break. And then when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more in depth on the science behind the structure and the systems in Biosphere 2. So stick around. All right. Sounds great. I have some exciting news. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics have teamed up to create Ecolite Apparel. Ecolite Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. Each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code, and when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite Apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite Apparel the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. Ecolite, clothing done right. 
Well, we're back here. This is segment two, and we're going to be talking about the science. Well, a little bit more. We've we've already mentioned a lot of the science, you know, from a thousand foot elevation uh, already with with the lungs and and the, and the overall structure of the building, as well as you know the separation to create the microclimates. So uh, I wanted to do a continuation of that, maybe go a little more in depth in whatever John would like to discuss. So John, is there any topics you would like to start out with that really come to the forefront of your mind? You know, I, I sort of divide the science for B2 into two categories. So we have the engineering. So we talked about the lungs and the glass and envelope that sealed it. But then it, within it, there's this balance. And today it's a pretty common word, uh, but back then it was. And, and this is bioregenerative systems. And you hear yeah. a lot of people refer to that, especially as it pertains to space travel. So we know that, for example, we can get to the moon and I have no doubt we can get back. Uh, there's a lot of people say that we have no problem. We can definitely put boots on the ground on Mars. But when it comes to actually staying there, that's an entirely mm -hmm. different component. Um, and many people believe for our social and psychological well-being, as well as our nutritional well-being, we need to have fresh produce, for example, and have some meals. And in doing so, that means you've got to grow crops. Uh, and exactly how are you going to do that when you're in space? And so they use bias for two in part to test that idea in theory. And we've grown agricultural systems indoors. Um, mm -hmm. And we know that there is a large movement to push a predominant component of agricultural production into indoor environments. In fact, uh, one of the faculty at the U of A, his name's Gene Giacomelli. You know, this is the last manufacturing, if you want to think of it as such, industry that is still predominantly outdoors. But when you're outdoors, you can't control the environment. As you're, so you're subject to all of that natural variability. And growing these plants inside Biosphere 2, they wanted to capture these fundamental processes that make you and I's lives possible on Earth. So they wanted to capture the nitrogen cycle. They wanted to capture the carbon cycle. They wanted to capture the water cycle. You know, how do you maintain salinity in the ocean? and you know, keep it separate from the freshwater stream that runs in the, the rainforest and the savanna. And you know, how do you have a gradient, for example, in the mangrove system? And so you know, some of these, they partially captured. So the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, you know, they function fairly well inside Biosphere 2. There was nutrient recycling. And so in the rainforest, all that leaf material, biomass would fall back down, it would decompose. And at least to date, they did a pretty good job at allocating the amount of square footage or area. The rainforest is about a half acre of space within mm -hmm. Biosphere 2 um, that we haven't seen any nutrient deficiencies. We haven't had to add anything because we've seen that our plants exhibit some type of a nutrient stress. And that's consistent whether you're in the savanna, the thorn scrub, the mangrove, the desert, the agricultural system, that half acre of land, when they actually sort of analyzed the data and looked at it, that half acre was one of the most highly productive half acres of lands anywhere in the world that had been documented. They referred to it as the intensive agricultural biome, and it was intensive. Now, they didn't have any nutrient deficiencies. The challenge that they faced is that they just weren't really good farmers, okay? <laughs> so the difference between the first group and the second group, remember there were two groups that lived in, and we talked about them in the first segment, mm -hmm. was the first group as much as they practiced before they went in, they still were not good farmers, okay? So, and it was very much a back to basics farming. You didn't have large machinery. You didn't have all of the pollinators that you might get. You didn't have all of those things at your disposal that modern agriculture affords us. And so 
they, although they produced a lot, it still wasn't enough calories. In the second group, they brought in a person, his name is Tilak Mahato, and he's Nepalese. He's a subsistence agriculturalist. And to be honest with you, he just did a much better job, even though it was only a six-month mission for that second group, at capturing and leveraging these natural processes and his expertise to be much more productive in that agricultural system. So they fared much better from their system, from the system itself and the food and the calories that they were getting, uh, and that they weren't always hungry, and they had a greater diversity of food within the system. And it was really attributed to his ability. Um, now, you know, things like the ocean inside bias for two. So there's sort of a natural salinity gradient that you see worldwide that happens. And that's because mm -hmm. there's, uh, you know, there's an influx of fresh water, but there's also an outflux of that through evaporation. Right. Um, and so you can actually look at salinity levels worldwide and you can see, well, where am I getting more fresh water? Where am I getting more evaporation? based on those salinity concentrations. Now, inside Biosphere 2, once the minerals that make up, it's not just salt, but the world's ocean have a lot of different minerals. And those minerals oh, yeah. are extremely important to support the needs of things that calcify, like corals, like clams, and create this balance. And so what they did, for example, to create the ocean inside Biosphere 2 is really unique. So they actually went over to the Pacific Ocean. They went over to San Diego uh, to the Scripps Institute, and they brought in these large tanker trucks. They sucked out as much. They sucked out about 100,000 gallons of water, and then they brought it over to Biosphere 2, and they dumped it into the ocean. In conjunction with that, they used what a lot of aquarists use today to create their saltwater environments. They used a salt additive. This particular salt additive is called Instant Ocean. It's been around for a really long time. And they added it in to create the salinity level for the ocean. The reason they did that 100,000 gallons, it helped to seed it with a lot of these microorganisms. So this yeah. community um, that was going to make their ocean survive and flourish. Um, and so within the bias for two ocean, there are internal cycles that took place. But again, the complexities were less. Same thing in the rainforest. The carbon, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, it's present, but its complexity is less than that you have on the outside. But I think given that Biosphere 2 is still living today, those systems are not needing a lot of amendments, if any amendments at all. Again, as a tribute is how well they were actually designed. Now, some of the original ecologists who helped to put Biosphere 2 together were considered to be the foremost experts at the time. So they had a desert ecologist, his name was Tony Burgess. They had other ecologists who helped them with the ocean and the mangrove. Uh, the mangrove system, we actually consult with one of the people who was part of the original consulting group. His name is Dr. Patrick Kangas. He's at the University of Maryland and actually brings students out to Biosphere 2 today to study our mangrove system and compare it to natural systems because the Smithsonian decommissioned theirs um, in that oh. Virginia area. So this is one of the few indoor systems he can now study. Same thing with the mangrove the rainforest system, but what's what's really unique is that Tony Burgess, and this is one of those things that resonated, when I first started working at Biosphere 2 about 25, 26 years ago, what he told me is when they assembled these systems, they thought the sheer size of this facility would allow them to capture a lot of those processes that we take for granted outside. And he says, we didn't even come close. And that those systems are so infinitely complex. And this is where the most important lesson from Biosphere 2 comes into play, 
in my opinion, the most important lesson to come out of bias for two is how infinitely complex Earth systems are and how we've just begun to scratch the surface of understanding them. You know, we look at who have, you know, people historically who have tried to capture those. We mentioned some famous experiment, BIOS 1, 2, and 3 by the Russians. We mentioned the Chinese Lunar Palace, but even going back, Vladimir Benzalski, he started to talk about a lot of these cycles. Uh, Claire Folsom, many of us have created bio bottles in our classrooms. So Claire Folsom created, that I know of in the early 80s, some of these first bio bottles where he took ocean water and a little bit of algae and then put them inside and they capped them and see how long they would survive. Uh, you know, today you see them and you can buy them, but you can buy these glass spheres that have a little bit of an air gap. They have a little bit of a, a plant or an algae. They mm -hmm. have water and then they have an invertebrate and it's in a closed loop, right? And it's an important closed loop because even though it's not as complex, it has all the necessary components to support the plants, to balance the water that support these invertebrates that are inside. And in fact, those miniature biospheres were actually created by a company called Paragon Space Enterprises. And two of the original biospherians who were part of that original group who were sealed in were founders or co-founders of that company. So it's funny how things, you know, we talk about circles and that's what these cycles are, how yeah. they come full circle in this world where you know, these groups and those bio bottles or these biospheres actually uh, were set up on the space shuttle in one of the missions. I don't remember which one. It's remarkable how these ecologists recognize the importance of capturing soil plant atmosphere interactions. But it's it's those processes and those interactions that are allowing us to today to do some really cutting edge science. Yes. Definitely. Uh, I have one question that's kind of like off kilter, and I don't know if you've ever been asked this before. Maybe you have. I know you mentioned. <laughs> I know you mentioned that there was some livestock that was that was in the facility at the time. Yes. H how did that fare out? Was there any like complications there as well? Not so much complications, but I think limitations. So what they had yeah. hoped is that their agricultural system would provide the predominant calorie intake. Uh -huh. and through this diversity. But then they also hoped to have a more significant protein input. And so they, they, had, they had some very traditional farm animals. They had mm -hmm. goats, chickens, and pigs. In addition to that, they uh, raised in a very, you know, it's been a system that's been around for 2,000 years. So they had yeah. rice patties, and then they had tilapia, and they had a zola. A zola is a small floating plant. What was happening here is that the tilapia would eat the azola, the azola would fix the nitrogen for the rice, and then they would harvest the rice. And at appropriate times, they would hope to harvest the rice and the tilapia to have a more significant input. They'd hope to be able to occasionally butcher a goat or to you know, use the high reproduction rate of pigs to have a more staple protein input or a significant component back into their diet. That did not work out as they had hoped because what ended up happening is that they were hungry. They were starving when they were inside. Anything that was possibly consumable, they consumed mm. themselves and they weren't going to feed the pig. They weren't going to feed the chicken. And chickens and pigs, for example, need a pretty high protein input yeah. to be able to produce eggs or to reproduce. And they weren't getting it, just like the humans weren't. So they pretty quickly eliminated those. Uh, they did eat some of that, but they didn't. 
the one thing, and this was one of the, so Abigail Aileen, one of the original Biosphereans, she was telling me this story, and this was just three or four years ago. They visited the site, had an opportunity to interact with them. And, you know, they didn't anticipate this challenge, but nonetheless, it played out. But what they didn't anticipate is just how versatile goats were. So goats would pretty much eat anything. <laughs> and so from the goats, they would consume all those things that were non-consumable. They'd still had a pretty good reproduction rate, although not super high. And they would produce milk for them. Nice. Um, and so that was one of the staple. And that was the one animal that started with them inside and completed it, as I understand it, um, at the end of that mission. So farm animals were factored into it. I think today, if we look to sort of the advancements of science and how we can supplement our diet with things, I think you would have a much better success rate today than they did back then. And, and what I mean by that is that not only could you do traditional agricultural, but we know how productive and efficient hydroponics and aeroponics are to yeah. so incorporate that. We know that you know insects can be grown and we can actually grow crickets to consume you know different types of cardboard or, or even our genes because what we can do is we can grow fungi like yep. mushrooms yep. on cardboard and genes. They break it down so that things like insects like these crickets can further consume it, then we can harvest it, we can grind up the crickets into a meal and sprinkle it onto a salad and get a more substantial protein input. We know that mushrooms by weight are oh. the most densely protein packed food that there is. Yep. So I think today, you know, looking back, if they had those types of things at their disposal and had taken advantage of them, they probably would have fared much better. Oh, and yeah. it's those processes, it's those cycles that we see are going to be critically important as we move these types of practices to off-world practices that will potentially allow us to establish long-term colonies on the moon first and then eventually Mars. Yeah, I mean, you said it. I don't think you're going to be transporting a pig to Mars, at nope. least <laughs> on the first few missions, right? And right. You could definitely get uh, a, you know, some some mushrooms or some mycorrhizae at least to get to sprout mushrooms to then create mm -hmm. spores, and then you could definitely take insects as well. That's yep. a lot lighter of cargo, <laughs> and even uh, today with the advancements in like. 3D printing technology and just our under a better understanding of biosynthesis, I guess we could even print different protein meats if we wanted to, to be able to sustain ourselves, which is interesting. Low energy, low water usage, yeah. and and it's just the same impacts. It just looks a little different. That's right. All. <laughs> well, that's it. And I think you know there are communities worldwide that have been consuming insects for a really long time. It's just yeah. now I think. For many of us, it's come to a prominent level where we, you know, it, it can provide and supplement areas where we have other deficiencies. Yes, most definitely. And and just to say, I think there was a little bit of a missed opportunity because if you would have had the rice patties and you would have had the livestock, you could have done a, done a really cool uh, experiment on uh, methane methane right. emissions and you could have you could have showed that like you know you get this much methane out of rice versus the livestock because a lot of people don't know that like rice is a big emitter of methane i think it's like one third of the anthropogenic produced methane emissions is from rice i'm pretty right. sure yeah <laughs> I, I don't know the exact number but i i, I do know that it is a high emitter it's large but um you know it's it's these non-anthropogenic sources of like methane and nitrous oxide that 
Bias for Two actually offers a really unique opportunity to study these processes within their system in ways that you can't do outside. But I know we'll save that for our next segment. Sounds good. Sounds good. Is there anything else that that you uh, would like to talk about before we we move on? No, I, I think the only thing I didn't sort of expand on is, you know, oftentimes one of the common questions we're asked when it comes to salinity in the ocean is how do we maintain it, right? And yes. so we talked about how we made the how they made the water and how they added this hundred thousand gallons to make up this volume that's six hundred seventy six thousand gallons. But once those minerals are in the water, they don't leave it. Okay, so the salt doesn't leave. Okay, unless it accumulates on surfaces. Yeah. And so they didn't see a very dramatic drop in salinity. Now, what they did see is you would get evaporation. So inside bias for two, I mean, there are days on hot summer days where you know you could evaporate close to about 2000 gallons. And so you have to make that up. So they yeah. would have to add that water back in. Now it's trapped in the system, it's somewhere. And they yeah. did try to collect as much as they could, but they would have to keep the water level at a constant height or volume to ensure that they didn't see wide fluctuations in salinity. And yes, over time, but much longer periods of time and a much slower process, you may have to add a little bit of salt back in. Because if you had a pipe leak and you lost some of that water out, or salt will accumulate, as we know, on surfaces, it's not going to make much of an impact day to day. But now, over years, it potentially could. And so they do. So we have had to add uh, one of these salt amendments back in to bring the salinity level back up to our target values. Yeah. And, you know, that makes another good point is, you know, you talk about the complexity, you know, because we can only do so much in, in the biosphere, but also the longevity, right? A lot of these issues are based on time. Like you lose salinity over a long period of time. You lose nutrients in soil over a long period of time if it's not completely cyclic. Like there's, you know, it's it's all based on time. So it's great that like the biosphere to exists. So we can look at, you know, longevity in, in these, um, in these different cycles, which is exciting. I'm glad you asked that question or you brought up that question because I was supposed to ask that question. I brought it up the first time that we met. I was like, I really want to know about your salinity in the ocean. Totally blank. Thank you for that. Yeah, my, you're welcome. With that being said, we're going to jump back into commercial break. And then when we come back for the last segment, we're going to be talking about the future plans of Biosphere 2. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same Seabar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Cbar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. This is the third segment, 
And we're going to be talking about the future of Biosphere 2, which is super exciting. We've been talking about the processes and, and the, you know, the science behind it and the history and, and all that, the managerial processes. But now we're going to get to talk about the really, really exciting stuff, which is what's to come. So, John, what do you got for me? Well, I, I mean, scientifically, Biosphere 2 has made a huge impact, not only in the first experiment, uh, but you know, as it transitioned away from one where people were living inside to utilizing it as an earth and environmental science laboratory, and some of those significant research outcomes, which I think are important before we talk about where we're going in the future is, you know, our ocean system, it was used by researchers and we were one of the first places to show a direct connection between increasing atmospheric CO2 and decreasing coral calcification rates. That experiment was done in the bias for two ocean. Today, we collectively hear about it as ocean acidification yeah. um, because CO2 is a, a gas that's soluble in water. You get more in the atmosphere, you get more in the water and it, and it drives a couple of reactions. And um, you know, it's, it's a reason why in part, uh, we see cor cor coral suffering worldwide. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about, well, increasing atmospheric CO2, it's good for plants. And part of the answer is they're right, but yeah. there's only so much that plants can absorb. And so yeah. there were some researchers who published a paper that suggested that, for example, tropical rainforest systems, their uptake of CO2 was going to saturate at about 600 parts per million. So that's a value that we're going to reach in about 50 years from where we are today. <laughs> and if plants saturate and they're no longer taking up that CO2, then the slope of increase atmospherically is going to go up very dramatically. Yes. So, but how do you validate that? So what we did in the bias for two rainforest is we actually subjected our rainforest through a series of CO2s, both a, a below and above that which was shown in this paper that modeled it. And what we were able to do is we were able to show that our system saturated at about 600 parts per million, just like the model predicted. So model validation and calibration is one of the really unique attributes and opportunities scientifically bias for two can contribute. So we did that in our rainforest. Uh, wow. we, did we did some experiments in what was the former agricultural system, and they were very profound. We grew cottonwood trees under different CO2 regimes because we could divide this agricultural system into thirds. So this half acre of space, if you can imagine, a third acre had about 100 trees, the other third had 100 trees, and the other third had 100 trees. But then we controlled CO2 like it is today, like it's going to be um, in about 100 years and like it's going to be in about 150 years. And we looked at not just how an individual tree or an individual leaf on that tree responded, but we looked at how this entire stand, these hundred trees reacted. And what's exciting scientifically, and, and this theme still holds true today scientifically, is that bias for two is this bridge between the very precisely controlled experiments that we can do in the lab and these field observations that we make in natural systems, but yet we have very little control. Yes. And so we can bridge that gap in a part. And that's what's really exciting about Bias for Two. Now, when the University of Arizona took over Bias for Two in 2007, there had already been a, an incredible amount of science that had been done, uh, an incredible and solid scientific foundation, but they saw an opportunity to conduct research inside Bias for Two that couldn't be done anywhere else in the world. And that is a key, okay? So going forward, the experiments that we're gonna do inside Bias for Two, if they can be done elsewhere, there's no reason in doing an insight. We want to really uniquely contribute 
and leverage the unique attributes of this facility to further science. And so we, we think the teams that come in think deeply about how they can leverage that. And they want to make sure that they can't do them anywhere else. Uh, the agricultural system and the richness of the soil, as we talked about in our first and second segment, was not only a challenge for those original group because of the microbial community and the diversity that supported, but it was also a challenge scientifically. And what I, what I mean by that is that when we would go to publish papers from whether it was this cottonwood experiment or a sorghum experiment that we did in there, the reviewers would always point back to the unrealistic soil that was in that space. So our, that was, a, that was a, a, a point of criticism all the time. So the University of Arizona came in and said, hey, what if we thought about removing that soil and we thought about leveraging this space to create a truly unique earth science experiment? And so they were able to remove all that soil. They spent a couple of years planning uh, where they had scientists from not only the University of Arizona, but universities around the nation and around the world, and from a wide range of disciplines, think about what is a grand challenge question that we could use this space and the, the large controlled nature of it to help better understand and shed some light on it. And that grand challenge question is the fate of water in semi-arid environments. And in order to shed some light on it, you know, the hydrologist said that, you know, if we could build a large lysimeter, this is a large weighing box, and we could look at how water moves through the soil, it's going to give us tremendous amounts of insights in ways that we just can't get in the lab and we can't get when we're working in the field. And the ecologist said, well, if we could add biology to that and add plants to it, then we can look at how biology and the physical systems interact to influence not only the formation and the development of life, but also the hydrologic cycle. And so what they ended up coming up with out of these two years of meetings is developing what we call today the Landscape Evolution Observatory. This is LEO. And what they did is they replicated, they replicated identically a hill slope that you would find at the initial stages of a watershed. They call it a zero-order catchment. They okay. put a volcanic basalt on it because this is one of those fundamental parent materials that breaks down into soil that we use today. Yep. And for the past eight years, we've been studying it without really any significant biological input. We've been looking at how the hydrologic models do at predicting the behavior um, that we see happen as water basically percolates through the soil and moves downstream. And so that elevator pitch, as it rains in the mountains, how much water ends up downstream for you and I to use and what impacts the quality of that water? And how does land use, whether it's the natural progression of it or whether it's that which you and I or, or as people instill on that. How does that change those hydrologic dynamics? And as you can imagine, here in the Southwest, that is critically important if we're going oh, to yeah. predict the presence and absence, the availability of water for future generations. Yeah. And so that's what we've been doing. And now we actually, so we built these three massive slopes. If you can imagine them, they sit on 10 primary support columns. So we built them up from the floor of what was once the agricultural space. We created this tray, this tray, uh, was sculpted in a way. Um, and so, you know, it's 330 square meters. So, you know, it's it's about 110 feet long. It's about 55 feet wide. The soil is about a little over three feet deep. It actually has a convergence zone. So if you can imagine the soil sort of coming into a channel, like okay. so that the, so, and then what we did is they outfitted it with sprinklers on the side. So you as a scientist can come in and say, I want to add 
uh, you know, a, a light rain, or I want to add a really heavy rain. They embedded in this soil, this, this volcanic basalt media, over 1,800 sensors and samplers. So you know precisely what's going on at virtually any location in the slope. You can come in and take a sample and you can look at the, you know, how the, the gas concentration is changing. You can look at how the water or the geochemical properties of that water is changing through these samples. The whole tray weighs nearly 2 million pounds and it's on load cells, okay? So mm -hmm. we can actually we can actually tell you up to about a two millimeter surface water change, how that weight is changing. We can look at how the nutrients are changing. And so we've been looking at how does the current hydrologic models do at predicting its behavior? Where do we need to fine tune it? And the grant that we just got from the National Science Foundation, we're gonna actually now add biology onto it. So what I ecologists will tell you is that as you add biology, biology mucks up everything, okay? <laughs> and so what we've done is we've unstitched the biological and the physical worlds that are stitched so tightly together outside, and we're gonna stitch them back together. And yes, it's this reductionist mentality, but it's allowed us to better understand the shortcomings of our models, how well they, where they do really well, where they don't, and allow us to tweak them so that we can understand these fundamental mechanisms that tie soil, plant, and atmosphere so we're really excited for this next phase of LEO. This is the University of Arizona's institutional experiment, but it's not the only place that we're doing research inside Biosphere 2. The rainforest is an area where we just subjected to a 70-day drought. We had an international team of researchers come in, led in part by a researcher at the University of Freiburg in Germany, but also a faculty at the University of Arizona. Her name, was, her name is Laura Meredith, and the faculty in Germany is Christiana Warner. They came in, they outfitted our rainforest, and then they subjected it to a 70-day drought. And it really, the, the rainforest uh, looked like a, an ICU patient. It had tubes and monitors, everything running everywhere, because they wanted to trace how the carbon, how the energy and the water in its distribution was influenced as it went from a really unstressed to a very drought-stressed state. And actually, those first results were just published in Science uh, in the issue. Uh, we have another paper um, that's, and actually not very many people know this, that's coming out here in another month. That's going to come out in Nature. And then there's about, they just sent me over the projected publication list. There's about 50 or 60 other papers that various researchers are going to be putting out in a wide range of peer-reviewed journals just as a result of that one study. So it shows the power of a controlled environment, a complex system like bias for two, and the insight that we can gain from these natural systems. We are remodeling our ocean system so that we can do a new set of experiments, not on carbonate chemistry because of CO2, but we're gonna really look at the thermal tolerance of corals. So we just mm -hmm. added a new heat exchanger. We added new filtration or circulation. We're in the process of finalizing our engineering designs, but we're going to add a light field over a portion of our ocean system to supplementally light it. So when we reintroduce corals, the corals won't be light stressed, but we're going to, we're going to heat stress them. And this is really significant because 50% of the Great Barrier Reef today has been lost. Yep. And most of that loss is attributed to these very dramatic increases in coastal temperature. But when you see these massive die-offs, there are always a few individuals that survive. What are the traits that give them? And so there are re teams of researchers worldwide, whether it's in Hawaii, you know, down in Brazil, in the Yucatan Peninsula, whether that's over in Hawaii or Australia, 
they are looking at what are those traits and how can they selectively breed assisted evolution, whatever you may want to call it, to potentially breed the next generation of corals. Because there is a group of of researchers that say if we do nothing and sort of just sit by on the sidelines, by 2050, reefs are going to cease to know as we exist them. So we may not be able to maintain the diversity, but if we can maintain that three-dimensional architecture that's so important that makes up a reef, then at least we're going to give some of these fundamental ecological properties a chance to survive. We're going to be able to maintain not only the ecological, but the social and the economic importance of reefs as well. So these are some of the upcoming experiments that have happened or are going to be happening inside Biosphere 2. Wow. Where do I even where do I even begin with that? There's so much. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah, like coral reefs. That's I guess, yeah, the one the one thing that I want to stress here is that we we've talked about oceanic acidification, but also the the warming of the ocean and the fact that coral reefs, you know, just just shallow, shallow sealants are absolutely important. Like whenever you think of the the vastness of the ocean i'm i'm sure the layperson thinks that, that it's just coated with fish everywhere not at all nope. not at all it like i i i don't want to say a percentage and be wrong but there is a huge huge percentage of biodiversity within our oceans that live around coral reefs period and we lose those whether it's whether it's warm coral reefs or even like cold water coral reefs you know we lose those and we're screwed I mean, two billion people, at least around the world, like have to have a diet based on um, oceanic life. So even just if you want to think about it in a social standpoint, human to human, not even just thinking about the ocean itself, that's that's big implications. Well, it is, and and you know, culturally they're extremely important, and and we see you know, a lot of communities that are dependent on reefs and the proximity that they have. And if those reefs, you know, we, we are seeing reefs move away from the equator into cooler environments. Yeah. But the problem is, is that those coastal communities that are dependent, they, they can't just pick up and move yeah. 100, 500, 1,000 miles up the coast because it's occupied by something else. So their entire livelihood, their entire cultural uh, dependency and importance that they get from reefs, you know, if they cease to exist, um, yeah. then in turn, they could potentially cease to exist. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So uh, I have a question about the, um, the, the, I'll just call it a soil. Like I, I don't, the soil bins that you, that you were talking about. So is this, so this is mostly made of basaltic rock, basaltic yeah. sediment. So is this trying to model like any sort of um, environment or just arid regions like what we have here in, in Arizona? Considering like you said about what's going on from the water that comes from the mountaintops down to the valleys, like what what happens from here to there and then adding biological, um, you know, adding a biological portion to the system. Are you also so? How are you studying the? How are you studying the anthropogenic uh, changes to um, that sort of basaltic sediment system? Right. So we're not able to study the anthropogenic changes. The non-anthropogenic changes is sort of where we're focusing. 
Um, okay. That's just because we can't necessarily replicate those in the same way or capture those processes. Yeah. But non-anthropogenic, um, so these non-human driven forces like weathering, the reason basalt was selected is it's one of these parent materials. So things like yes. other parent materials are like granite, schist, rhyolite. Um, they've in part, if you went and collected them, a lot of that reaction has already taken because most of these are relatively old materials. Um, geologically, relatively speaking, most volcanic material is relatively young. Yes. So this was actually collected right here in Arizona, right up by Flagstaff, um, you know, in a, a, a deposit. They actually dug, they were able to work with a company who had access to this cinder pit. Um, they were able to, you know, have them collect them from pretty deep within this cinder pit bring them out in relatively larger particle sizes, and then grind them down into a loamy sand. So, you know, sort of the consistency of a sand where they started out, you know, in particles that were, you know, three, four, five inches in size or bigger. Mm -hmm. When you do that, you increase, obviously, the reaction surface area. Right. Basalt, because it hasn't had that same amount of reaction time that other parent materials have had, it's highly reactive. And it's highly reactive when you just add water to it. So we actually see it weathering. We see it absorbing CO2. That process actually breaks it down and produces secondary minerals. And this rate of weathering is actually happening faster than, um, you know, some of these early scientists had initially predicted. Uh, we're seeing the gradual development and um, increase in diversity of a microbial community. So it was anaerobic. Now it's aerobic. Um, we're actually seeing a a sort of a, a moss-like organism start to colonize or crust the surface of the basalt. And then we're going to add alfalfa to it to really see how it changes the dynamics. So this has been extremely important to understand those fundamental mechanisms. And we were one of the first places to couple a land surface and an atmospheric model and then calibrate that model uh, using these systems. Um, we are able to run tracer experiments. So how long does water stay in these systems? How does that material hold it? How do our current models do at predicting that behavior? We're able to test those. Uh, we're actually running an experiment in collaboration with the University of Illinois and the University of Arizona and some of our folks in hydrology department this summer right now. We call it a random forcing experiment. So we add water uh, randomly to the slopes at different uh, intensities and different volumes and look at how long sort of it stays and we're able to inject a tracer and see where it shows up and how quickly it moves through the system. Um, and so this, again, helps people in the outside better understand some of these dynamics that we're seeing. I think the important thing, whether we're talking about the Landscape Evolution Observatory, the LEO, or the Rainforest of the Ocean, is that none of these systems are analog to what we have on the outside. And this goes back to what we mentioned in our first two sessions, is that there's no true replica for Earth. But Biosphere 2 allows us to, in part, bridge that gap between the lab and the field in a way that isn't available in any other facility. And so there's really unique experiments that we can do in these systems that we've talked about that we can't do anywhere else in the world. But there's also as you can imagine, a huge importance. And there are other groups that are doing experiments that we could never even think of inside Biosphere 2. So it's the culmination of what everybody is doing that is critically important. And Biosphere 2 is but one piece, although I think a very important piece, to understanding these global systems 
and how they're changing. And we may be, out, be able to stop the change, but if we can anticipate that change, it allows us to adapt. And if we can't adapt, we're not going to survive. I agree. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. John, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm I'm glad I didn't have to do much talking this time. This was awesome. I'm, I'm glad I got to hear more about Biosphere 2 and just the history, the, the science behind it, the processes that you got going on and what's to come and what's going on right this second. It's so exciting. Uh, I'm going to have to come back. <laughs> uh, and that's an important part that you make. I really appreciate the opportunities. I'm sorry I monopolized a lot of our time. As you can tell, I'm really passionate about Biosphere. But but the really exciting thing, too, is that people can visit Bias for Two. You don't yeah. have to be a researcher to come here. So come on down. We have opportunities every single day. The only days that we're closed are Christmas and Thanksgiving. We're open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, you know, you, we have an incredible app now so that you can go through at your own pace and spend as much or as little time as you would like in many of these areas and learn firsthand what we're doing and see them for yourself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd love to come back down and meet you personally. I, I was there, of course, as a tourist as first, and I went through the app. I loved the tour. It was great. I spent a long time there just checking everything out. It was it was wonderful. Of course, because you know, I'm a structural engineer and a physicist, I just I was I was in heaven pretty much. <laughs> right. Yeah. I brought my geologist friend and and we just went off. It was great so much fun but yeah um I, I hope to come back down sometime hopefully get to personally meet you well I, i'd love to have you back let me know uh we'll definitely uh show you around and expand on what we're doing here uh but sam it's been a pleasure i really appreciate you giving me and bias for two an opportunity to be showcased on your program absolutely well thanks john i appreciate it you're welcome H have a great have a great day you too thanks that is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to John for taking time out of his busy schedule to share his knowledge and experience at Biosphere 2. And I highly recommend you go check out the facility. Biosphere 2 is just north of Tucson, Arizona and is truly impeccable. To learn more, head to their website linked in the description or search biosphere2.org. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by myself, marketed by Courtney Page, QC by Panya Pit Erickson, and our episode art was manifested by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for some feedback, and the rating would definitely help us out in the fight against the algorithms. And again, I encourage you to sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. The Monday before each episode, you'll get a preview of that episode. And as a bonus, we'll include some information that you just wouldn't hear during the discussion. But most importantly, reply to our newsletter with a question for the upcoming show. We'll take one or two questions and answer them during the recording. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit just to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.